2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
3: Hey, Dave. Yeah,
4: Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write
3: an ad? Yes.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present,
5: and to Aboriginal elders emerging. We remember receiving a phone call from my sister-in-law that Gordana was missing. It happened in front of her home and my husband quickly left to go and start searching. They were out all night. A couple of other family members out all night searching, searching and everything came to light in the following few days when the story started to unfold and Sonia had found Gordana's uh, wallet and a torn plastic bag down the bottom of the driveway.
4: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next.
5: There was quite a few witnesses. There was a number of boys on skateboards. There was an older lady that saw her walking down the street that saw the white car but the picture didn't become clear immediately. It was the following days where they started to pull things together as witnesses were coming forward. Well, when Gudana went missing, I knew one of the girls, Amanda Zolus, because I worked as a residential support worker at the time for disability. And I used to look after Amanda's sister and I knew the mum, um, Cecily Zollis. So when Gudana went missing, she came to see me, and then we created an organisation to help the other girls as well that have been missing for 20 years and become a a very strong support group. But as time goes by, like there was another family, Dan, Dan and Beth, they're deceased, Cecily's deceased, And it's only me and Anne Robinson's mother that are uh, alive and still pushing.
1: It's taken 40 years. Police moved in, pouncing on a 58-year-old Gold Coast man this afternoon. Detectives from Strikeforce Arapaima taking the former Lake Macquarie resident to Southport Watch House, where he remains in custody. In April last year, detectives launched Strike Force Arapaima, reopening the investigation into three of the state's most baffling cases. The disappearance of Lake Macquarie teens Robin Hickey, Amanda Robinson and Gordana Kotevsky.
5: I suppose over the years you develop coping mechanisms that you never had before. And, um, but I've always been a realist, so I don't, you know, um, you can hope and wish, but you've got to deal with reality as well. And that's probably what hurts the most.
0: These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash Ost True Crime Pod. And leave us a review wherever you download your podcasts. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
2: My childhood, well, about eight years old, he came on the scene. And uh, he was a heavy drinker, full-blown alcoholic. Later on, he's diagnosed bipolar. And um, there he'd regularly... Go off on sort of psychotic rampages and, um, always going off with my mum. i uh, I step in a lot of the time or try to. And they're basically same sort of stuff that I ended up doing myself later in life.
0: is a man called Andrew. I'm going to call him brave, but that might not be what you would call him. In any case, we're going to be looking for more men like him later in the show, so please hang around for that. But first, tell me if you've seen this horror movie. A handsome young university student who spends more time partying than studying is sleeping the afternoon away instead of attending classes, as is his habit... On this particular afternoon, though, he is awoken by loud banging, screaming even. The sound of what he thinks might be one of his more studious flatmates being attacked outside his room. Is he dreaming? Is it the television? The television is very loud. The noise continues. He leaps up and pushes some of the furniture against the door and he cowers, terrified, waiting for the noises to stop. When they do stop, he sits silently until he's sure it's really over and then he moves the furniture gingerly away from the door and creeps outside. What he finds, he later describes as a nightmare. In his words, all the familiar rooms, walls, fixtures, decorations, the things I saw and touched every day, the objects I knew and recognised were tainted with pools, smears and spatters of blood the walls along the hallway right past my bedroom door all the way from the lounge room to the front door were smeared with blood the young man's two housemates are lying dead on the floor of the apartment I'm sure you've guessed by now that this is not the plot of a horror movie but a case of Australian true crime and a baffling one at that the year is 2003. The man barricaded inside his bedroom is Singaporean national Ram Tawari, who, along with his two flatmates also from Singapore, was studying at the nearby University of New South Wales in Sydney. One of the dead men was seen alive at a lecture less than half an hour before Ram Tiwari's triple zero phone call reporting his murder.
2: I need the ambulance and the police. There's been a murder.
5: My my two my two friends are lying dead outside. There's blood all over the
0: place. Although his classmates did have some interesting observations to share with police afterwards. There are many fascinating twists and turns to this case, which makes it all the more frustrating to learn that it was decidedly underreported here in Australia. Journalist and author Liz Porter included the case in her book.
3: Crime Scene Asia, and she joins us to talk us through it. Ram Tawari's story is that at two in the afternoon on this uh, September afternoon, he's sleeping in, say so as usual, and it was two in the afternoon, and he was still in bed. He's he like was... an art student, Ram. Yeah, exactly,
0: not an engineering student. Exactly.
3: Um, he he was very social. He had a girlfriend he who was very fond of him he loved night clubbing often stayed out late often slept in so this wasn't altogether unusual But he had, by his account, he'd been sort of snoozing all day. At some point he heard uh, a bit of a loud bang in the apartment but just woke up and heard the loud television and thought, ah, one of the others is watching TV, went back to sleep. Then a couple of hours later he's woken up by much more noise outside his bedroom door and he hears all these what sounds like somebody being hit What he told the Triple O operator was that he had actually heard screaming and he'd heard some kind of bangs and he had, to his shame, done nothing about it. In Mm. fact, he had barricaded a chest of drawers against his door. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, yes. pretty scary. Yeah. And it's interesting because it was later established that he had done this. There were finger marks on his door in the right spot and there were also marks where the dust had been disturbed. This is from the crime scene photos. Okay. That he certainly had done that But because his whole story was disbelieved later. But initially... He rings up Triple O and uh, says that his two flatmates have been stabbed and the police come and the ambulance come and he tells the story of this terrible discovery, finally coming out and calling Triple O and what he's oh, seen. Oh, so he
0: ventures out he from venture behind out. his barricade. Yes,
3: when it goes quiet, he ventures out. He goes out. In fact, he grabs the baseball bat that he sees lying there and retreats to his room and barricades it and he calls Triple O from the room. Mm. Yes.
0: God, well, uh, yeah, all of that sounds reasonable to me. How yes.
3: terrifying. Yes, yes. So this all happened in the middle of the day. In the middle of the afternoon, yes, yes. So he has a long conversation with the Triple O operator and then he divulges that he is still holding the baseball bat and uh, she suggests to him that he, before he goes outside, he actually put it down. He's unwilling to because he's so frightened. Yeah. But and he finally does come outside. He runs down the road when he sees the ambulance. In fact, the two female paramedics lock their door when they see him arriving because they think uh, he might be the assailant, but, you know, it's soon established that he is not yeah. and, he, and he's interviewed by police and he's interviewed politely as if he were a witness to a terrible crime.
0: I can understand all of that. You know, you're called, you're a paramedic and waiting downstairs, as I'm sure you've been told to do, and then a man just comes out running at you. Who the mm. hell knows? Mm. Exactly. And I wonder
4: if the triple um, zero operators sort of say, did she interpret it as maybe that was the weapon, the baseball bat, or just told him to
3: well, put just, it down? she was aware that it wouldn't be a good look. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You could be shot, let's yes, be honest. Yes, Yes, you can. Yes. So... Yes, he's interviewed by police that afternoon and uh, nobody appears to doubt his story. In fact, in the interview, the first round of interviews, he's actually pointing out to the police that he does have some blood on him because when he went to see the first flatmate whose body he found slumped against the wall, he actually felt for a pulse and his flatmate coughed and as happens, and and there was some blood on his feet as a result and a little bit on his clothing, but only a small amount. And he actually points that out to the police. But later on, it appears that the blood that was on his feet is taken as evidence against him, not evidence of him having just stood by a coughing, dying man.
0: So Tay and Tony, are they pronounced dead at the scene?
3: Oh, they are most certainly dead, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So he does. He is covered in blood. No, he's not covered in blood. That's the Ram. crucial thing. He only has a bit of blood on him. Okay. It's a bit of blood on his feet, a little bit on his uh, shirt, but he's pointing out to the cops in the interview where the blood is. Okay. Um, And why and how it got there. Yeah. Okay. And and that's all pretty much accepted. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the crucial thing is the terrible thing that happens is how can a young man who admittedly doesn't behave with great courage, but in a way we can totally understand. (laughs) He didn't go to the help. He heard something going on in the flash behind his bedroom door. He didn't go to... uh, help and he hid in his room, but then he came out and the, f- the first opportunity felt for his flatmate's pulse called Triple O. But how can the witness become the accused? Mm. Because the police do investigate at the time and they find out there's all sorts of mysterious things happening. Initially, they think that the men might have been the victim of some kind of kidnapping attempt because there's been a bit of a spate of, of attempted kidnappings of Asian students, but that theory is dismissed. And then they interview the other students who were at the lecture where the, the fact is that the lecture at 12 o'clock, one of the dead men attended, the other man didn't, which was unusual. And the, the man that attended was looking odd and disturbed and nervous and not his usual self. And at the end of that lecture at two o'clock, he and the man who hadn't appeared were supposed to meet some with some other blokes to have a, a meeting. And, and the surviving flatmate said, no, no, my friend had something else to do. And he Didn't want to hang around. And then the others see him picked up. Uh, There's a car waiting for him outside and there's a general vibe of tension around and he gets into the car. He goes back to the apartment because then, and that's at about 2 o'clock, and then by uh, 2.30 or so, he's dead.
0: And is the person who drove that car ever identified?
3: No, this is the crucial thing. There is this mystery white car. Okay. Nobody, uh, the white car was seen. Nobody has a uh, a number plate. Nobody even has a type of car. Police did put out press releases looking for the car. Nothing came of it. And basically the investigation into this mysterious murder seemed to have kind of gone into a bit of a lull, somewhat because Ram Tawari was interviewed and he went through a kind of a reenactment of, of what he'd done when he discovered the bodies, then he heard nothing. Then time passes and he's he's actually, as I have uh, mentioned, he's not a good student. He's behind in his grades, he's been failing exams and unfortunately he hasn't been owning up to his family or to the Singaporean army whose scholarship he has that he's been doing really badly. And finally, by about March or April the next year, he realises that he's just going to have to go home to Singapore and face the music. He can't. Mm -hmm. Uh, The university has actually sort of cancelled his tuition because he hasn't been paying the fees. And basically everything has gone to hell for him in his student life and the best thing to do is just go home. Mm -hmm. Um, It means that his family will have to to, uh, pay back his scholarship. But as a conscientious witness, he rings the investigating detective and says look, just in case you need me, I need to go home to Singapore to attend to my scholarship. And he thinks that's okay. but then they ask him when he's planning to go. He hasn't actually booked a flight yet. And then the police ask him to come in for an interview the next morning and instead of just interviewing him, they arrest him. And then his nightmare starts. (laughs) I mean,
0: all of which is completely reasonable, after what he's been through, of course, of mm. course his studies lapse. Yeah. Mm. He wasn't the greatest student to begin with. Mm. Of course he has to go home, of course. And yet, from a detective's perspective who has no other people of interest, of course it looks like maybe he's running away.
3: Mm. And they had one possible motive why Tuari could have wanted to murder his blackmates, but a pretty slim one in my estimation. He supposedly owed one of them $5,000 in back rent.
0: Yeah. I mean, people have been murdered for less. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Tuari denied that. He said he'd paid them back and there wasn't really really any proof either way. But it seems that the fact of his decision to go back to Singapore made the detectives panic because until that point, they had no intention, it appears, of arresting him. And as I said, he actually telephoned them. He, If he had just boarded a plane he would have got away. Wouldn't we have extradition
0: with Singapore? Yes, yeah, but it's
3: complicated. It's always a bit complicated and you have to have good reason for it. And the fact is they actually didn't have a case at that point. Mm. I would argue that they never really had a case and, and as the final result showed, they in fact didn't have a case, but in fact they still managed to convince two juries that this young man was guilty of murder. God. How did they then, after they've arrested him, build the case? Well, basically, they built the case on motive, which was the the money, and blood staining, which was a very, very contentious issue because there was a very small amount of blood there. And there is good evidence around that coughing, the dead or dying people cough and can cough blood onto the person who goes to their aid. In fact, there was a very famous New South Wales case where there was actually a Royal Commission about it and the result was was reversed after it was not proven, you could never prove these things, but the hypothesis was suggested that that somebody coughing a dying person coughing onto the person who is leaning over them could produce the same kind of blood spatter that could be interpreted as evidence of an assault. This is the problem, though, isn't it? It's interpretation.
0: So obviously mm. the prosecution had an expert who was very believable to the mm. jury, mm. Who, whose interpretation they found mm. reliable, mm. and more so than the interpretation that the expert who belonged to the defence was able to present.
3: Yeah. Well, more importantly, I think, and this is one reason why, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a big fan of the jury system sometimes. I know defence lawyers always say how how valuable it is. And yes, I do agree with the notion that when it's taken on from the defence point of view, that better that 10 guilty people go free than one not guilty person is locked up. But the fact is, well, I happen to know of two or three cases where a jury has convicted somebody of murder. It seems to me simply because they didn't like them. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. didn't like them. But
0: then again, I mean, you can have uh, one judge who doesn't like a person yes. for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. difficult, isn't it? Yeah. I think
4: I'd prefer a judge-only trial. I've been listening to the Claremont case and I think that's a judge-only mm. trial. And, yeah, I think I'd prefer that. I'd be a bit scared to
3: have a jury trial. Well, I've always thought that if I had actually committed a crime, I would prefer a jury trial <laughs> on the basis that uh, I hope... I could be likable enough for a jurist like me. That's possibly very arrogant of me to say that. But if I if I was innocent, I think I'd rather have a judge. Me Which, too. Of course, yeah. I would
4: be innocent. If of be innocent. Not, yes. Me, no, I don't know. But
3: yeah.
4: <laughs> I, I'd rather a judge. I I don't know. Yes.
0: It's difficult too because I think look culturally, this man is an outsider in our country, mm. and so I think he is up against. I'm going to say some potential misunderstanding. That that are going to make it difficult for him to appeal to or to a jury and to explain himself to a jury, explain his thoughts and actions. He changed his story too, didn't he? A couple of times through.
3: Well, the thing was not didn't really change his story to the police, even though there were some discrepancies about. Did he uh, say? to the triple O operator, that he had seen both bodies and when he was interviewed by the police later that he's only seen one. But people, it's well documented that when people are shocked and traumatised that their, their memories of things are inaccurate. The prosecution made a huge deal of that during the trial, during both trials. The other thing that may really have undone him is that The prosecution very successfully presented him as a liar because he had lied about his exam results. In fact, he had at one point to his parents had presented his girlfriend's academic transcript as his. he lied there. And the other thing was that after these murders happened, understandably, he got really weary of people asking him "So what happened. Mm. So he started telling people that, you know, he got home after the paramedics. Um, He told all sorts of different variations, all to minimise his own involvement. So he wouldn't anymore be construed as being at the centre of the scene. So the prosecution... Basically, had a whole lineup of different witnesses who had been told different things by him about what happened at the crime scene. Again, I find that really quite understandable. Yeah, because he was just hating the fact of being at the centre of attention about this awful event.
0: How significant do you think it was that he felt embarrassed about the fact that he hadn't gone out into the Malay? Mm. when he knew it was happening and that he had chosen to protect himself and barricade himself into the room the idea that he felt like a coward
3: i think that's crucially important yeah. and that's another reason for him telling those different stories yeah. to his uh, to the different uh, people who ask him about it and he when he moved into a new apartment not long after all this yeah he was i think it pains to kind of not present himself as having been part of it yeah and maybe I'm wrong about that being cultural I I, you know maybe makes sense to me he was you know he'd been in the army no he was trained as a commando yeah no I think he was ashamed about that as well too
0: yeah I think maybe that was hard to explain to an Australian jury maybe uh, well maybe that's just a a man thing I don't Mm. know but I thought god wouldn't you just when there's this much at stake just Mm. tell the truth about that is it that important but Mm. um, Mm. I think it might have been to him that embarrassing. So,
3: yeah. So the prosecution did a very good job of yeah, presenting him as someone who cannot be trusted and that the whole thing, if you lie about one thing, how can you ever be believed if when you deny anything else? And they did a very good job, the prosecution, of basically minimising the fact that incredibly, given that the whole scene was an absolute bloodbath, that this man had hardly any blood on him And there were all kinds of discrepancies in the forensic evidence. And this is what, in the end, freed him. And this is why, of course, I find the case so interesting, because the truth was there all along in the forensic evidence or rather in the lack of
0: forensic evidence, shall we say. Yeah. Isn't that always amazing to look back on Mm. when a conviction is overturned and you look back and go, well, actually, yeah, there never was any Mm. evidence, Mm. no physical evidence, no Mm. witnesses because it didn't happen that way. Mm. But, look, he was convicted that first time. And the second time. Right. So
3: he appealed and yes, he was given a, a, a new retrial, trial. Yes. And then another trial and the same, basically ran the trial yeah. with the same result and then appealed again. And then the, the third time, the appeal judges, he had, had the, according to a barrister I interviewed about it, he had the three best judges on the New South Wales Appeals Court and they in their judgment they set it out beautifully because the fact was there were two murders um, and the forensic evidence set everything out there were there were two murders and they took place about 2 hours apart oh uh, okay. yes so the first murder took place around midday or the the he had been certainly dead or he had rather taken about two hours to die, the first oh, guy. Oh no. And they could tell that by the presence of a certain protein in his brain. But he had been bashed over the head with a with some sort of implement and most probably not the baseball bat that was present in the flat and that Tuari had bought because he wanted to play baseball. Hmm. That had happened at midday while the other guy was at the lecture. And then the second guy who'd been to the lecture and came home, he had been murdered sometime after two o'clock. And that was the murder that Ram Tiwari had had woken up to. To hear, yeah. But the police's case was that Ram had beaten both of them to death and supposedly with this same baseball bat. Yet this baseball bat was new, had never been used, was still in its shrink wrapping. But the... Bits of shrink wrapping that you'd expect to find in the head wounds were only found on the head wounds of the man who was murdered second. So the police case was that he must have washed the bat between murder one and murder two. But the handle of the bat was not wet and again there were bits of its shrink wrap found in the head wounds of the second guy not in the head wounds of the first guy so it clearly wasn't the murder weapon for murder one so there was that one there was no evidence in the flat that any washing had taken place they looked down the sink took the pipes apart there was no blood down the drains so if he had done this murder, he would have had to have been covered in blood. But there was no evidence of having been washed away. So it was one of those cases of, like the Sherlock Holmes story, the curious incident of the dog in the night. It's the dog that didn't bark at the intruder, which shows that the intruder was known to the to family. the dog. Yes, that's right.
0: Now, but hang on. The way you're talking, I've mm. just realised something. Mm. So Ram was... His conviction was overturned.
3: Finally, yes. Ultimately. Yes.
0: But the way you're talking suggests to me that no one has actually been convicted of these. I was just thinking that then. No,
3: no, no, because it was, the trail was far too cold. The trail of the mystery people in the white car was cold pretty much straight away, but they might have had some chance of finding the car if they had worked really hard on it in the weeks afterwards. Yeah. But they didn't. So, oh my God, so, so the nobody first... has ever been convicted of their murder. was a really
4: violent, violent crime, yes. but
3: yes. it seems
0: as though the first man was murdered mm. roughly around midday when mm. the lecture started mm. mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he didn't turn up for the lecture. No, yeah the, the man who didn't turn didn't... up was
3: murdered, yes. yes, then the
0: second man was... did turn up for the lecture, but late and and, and was
3: driven home by these hmm. mystery people in the white car and
0: nervous. So the second man turned up for the lecture late and nervous and out of sorts. Mm was picked up by a stranger in the car and driven home. Mm. We've never found out who that stranger was.
3: Or or who that car was. And
0: then it... Pretty much as soon as he arrived home, is when Ram was awakened yes. by the sound of
3: his murder. Yes, pretty much, you know, within about 15 minutes, yeah. And so, and, and a car was seen pulling away, a white car was seen by another student in the street pulling away from the street at the right time. But it was just a white car, they weren't even sure whether it was white or actually blue, pale blue.
0: So, what year did this?
3: Nightmare all end for Ram Tiwari. It had started in 2003 with the murders and his second appeal was heard in 2012 in September and so he was finally free in 2012. And September 2014, two years on, he actually published a memoir about it in Singapore, but he has never, ever been interviewed about it. And in his memoir, he gives no clue as to what he might have thought about what was happening in the lives of those other two.
0: Have we ever found out anything since then about the lives of Tae Yang Mm. or
3: Tony Chuan, the victims? Clearly they were involved... In something mm-hmm. uh, that, that brought about dead, yes. There was, you know, the carload. the fact, there was more than one person in the, in the white car that picked Tony Tan up after his lecture and drove him home to to his death. And clearly it was something that involved those two. And it seems incredible that Ram might not have had some idea about it. And maybe he does, did, and felt too threatened by it to ever talk about it. I don't blame him. You're hardly Mm. likely to ever let on, are you? Mm. Yeah,
4: because those people are probably Mm. still walking around. Mm. I I was thinking, so possibly the guy who went to the lecture and looked really unnerved... Mm. Maybe some people were in the house, and he wasn't sure what was going to happen to the other housemate. I was just that was just going through my mind. Yeah. With what, yes, what, oh, what, oh,
5: that, know, that
3: makes but sense. But maybe not. Yeah.
4: Like
0: oh, you'd the, have to assume he yeah. didn't know what had happened. No,
3: that's no. What you'd I have to assume that yet yeah, that his flatmate was still alive when he left, but that he was worried. Yes, and, and which makes you think were they in debt or? But you think that with the investigation, the the police investigated a possible affair that one of them was having, but there was nothing going on there. It was just a friendship. But the thing that that worries me most about this case is the fact that two juries found this man guilty Yeah, and that the, the prosecution described him as a cunning and crafty liar. He devised an elaborate big lie, in inverted commas, about sleeping through the attack on his housemates. And certainly, I mean, there's a bit of a warning to any potential murderers out there. You know, if you ever think you're going to face court, don't tell lots of small lies because um, Mm -hmm. when it comes time to tell the big lie... No one's going to believe you either. Absolutely.
0: But, you know, it's a warning for, for all of us, isn't it, that the most basic lie that you've told in your life, that we, the kinds of lies that we all tell, I'm going great at uni, Mum and Dad. Yes. <laughs> you right. know?
4: I paid that tuition bill. Yes. <laughs> yes.
3: Those um, little silly yes. things yeah. can be bought back up and made to look so important. Mm. And there's another suggestion made by one of the lawyers I spoke to was that there was no publicity about the case in Sydney at the time. And you know how judges always warn jurors not to do any research about the case. But at the time in Singapore, there was a lot of publicity about the case and all sorts of scurrilous stuff was dug up about him. You know, at times he, he you know, lost his temper. And yeah. there was one article which said, you know, killers' smiles hid an angry, dark side. When And you can always find an anonymous person who wants to say something bad. Yes. And he wonders whether some of the jury did a bit of research because they they couldn't place this guy at all because he was uh, a foreigner. Tawara himself believes that racism was a factor. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it would be hard not to feel that way. If I had been convicted twice in another country of a murder I didn't commit, I'd probably feel that way. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I would feel that too. You know, when... Tawari wrote his memoir. Mm -hmm. He quoted a prisoner that he met in his time in jail as saying, if you are brown-skinned and are charged with a violent crime, you will be convicted. If you are yellow-skinned and charged with a drug crime, you will be convicted. If you are Aboriginal, look it, and are charged with any crime, you will be convicted. If you fall outside those groups, only then does reasonable doubt come into play with the jury. I put that to one of the lawyers who was involved in the case and he says, basically, he wasn't that sure about racism, but he says, they just didn't like him. Therefore, they didn't believe a word he said.
0: That's Liz Porter and Ram Tawari's story is just one of many included in her excellent book, Crime Scene Asia which is available from the bookshop on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com. After the break, we're seeking very brave men, that's what I'm calling them, and we'll hear an extraordinary conversation about domestic violence with a convicted offender. But first, thank you to these patrons, Erin Mags, Kelly Tahu, I hope I got that right, Glenn Berger, Cara Smith, and Natalie Versace. Lucky
1: you, that's a great name. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: Coming up on Australian True Crime, do prison-based anger management programs actually work? That's the kind of question we ask a lot when we talk about Australia's domestic violence problem. But we rarely, if ever get the opportunity to ask a man who's been through such a program. I got that opportunity a couple of years ago when I was talking on a radio show about Chris Brown and Rihanna of all things and out of the blue a man called Andrew called up to talk about his experience as both a victim and a perpetrator of domestic violence. I ended up recording a long chat with him after the show and I'd like to play it for you now because an Australian television production company is looking for honest, brave men like Andrew to help move this conversation forward and really change things and I'm hoping that Andrew might inspire some volunteers.
2: I've been charged with assault twice, convicted once, domestic violence towards my partner. Um, we are together again now. Uh, We've we split up for a very long time. Obviously, because of that, I was violent. Uh, we've been together 12 years. All uh, up after about three years, I started getting violent towards her.
0: Prior to that, did you witness domestic violence in your childhood?
2: Uh, I was a victim of okay. domestic violence yeah. when I was a child, and uh, I was brought up in an environment where violence seemed completely normal to me. And um, as I got older, and um, you know the trials and tribulations of life. Things got harder. I started abusing substances. I started drinking heavily. And after a couple of years of being with my partner, um, we were fighting quite regularly and the fighting became physical. Um, And my partner would do something like, she might push me or slap me and that would be it. I'd go completely nuts. Uh, She had to go to the hospital a couple of times. Um, Yeah. I've. Just generally, I'd i put pin her to the ground, punch her up, I'd choke her um, over relatively nothing. In hindsight, you know, we'd be screaming at each other about silly things, you know, money or what to have for dinner, and I'd lose my lose my temper, and that. Yeah.
0: Can we talk a little bit more about your childhood? About what kind of violence? Who was perpetrating the violence? What okay. level of violence?
2: Yep. Well, um, I uh, my my stepfather He was with my mother for nine years uh he was around for the majority of my childhood well, about eight years old he came on the scene and uh he was a heavy drinker um full-blown alcoholic later on it was found that he was uh he's diagnosed bipolar which mm. didn't happen at the time but that's later in life and um there yeah, he'd regularly go off on the sort of psychotic rampages and um always going off with my mum. Uh, I'd step in a lot of the time or try to. And they basically same sort of stuff that I ended up doing myself later in life would yeah. punch me up for no apparent reason. You know, you'd be telling him to leave the room and he'd kick the door down and um That's yeah,
0: terrifying pin you down,
2: punch you up, um nearly he broke my arm one time. Um Yeah.
0: Did any but, other uh, did any other adults know what was going on in your home?
2: My mum knew about it. Uh, my mum was also a victim, but it was a situation where we kept it quiet. Yep. It was just one of those things we didn't really talk about it. As I said, I grew up in a violent household, and I grew up with uh, violent adults around me. Uh, my, my stepfather's friends—they were all uh, bikies or big, big trucky interstateers, and you know, generally stereotypical, big, heavy drinking, violent people. So no one really saw anything of it. There was a couple of people knew about it, but It was just one of those things that wasn't really spoken about.
0: So your mum never never was given offered help by anyone, she was never she never left and went to a shelter or anything like that?
2: No, they they similar situation. They broke up a couple of times for a few months here and there, but he'd always say he'd be better, he'd he'd change and they'd get back together and things would sort of go back to the way they were. Yeah. And just yeah, as I said, just sort of left it. It's one of those things every time. You know, a couple of people hear about it or I'd I'd tell people about it and nothing would ever really come of it. You know, sometimes people would think it was just the kids being a bit dramatic and uh, sometimes they'd, uh, they'd talk to my stepfather or my step- someone would say it's not right and, yeah, nothing was ever sort of taken to the authorities or no one was ever offered to help out.
0: Wow. What sort of people were you telling? Were you telling people like school teachers or these family friends? or?
2: Oh, I never told my teachers or anything. I was mm. too afraid of. getting in trouble you know what what would happen to me on a regular basis for doing nothing but i couldn't imagine what he would do if i told people yeah so it was just mainly friends or you know friends of my parents and um most of the time it was just as good as falling on deaf ears because everyone was you know heavy into drugs or alcohol you know they weren't really the kind of people that would sort of really care i suppose you'd say
0: also i suppose back in our i don't know how old how old are you
2: I'm 27.
0: Okay. So I remember, I'm 42 and I remember when I was a kid, that it was very much a private matter and if yeah. if your parents had suspicions about another family, they felt as though it wasn't their business to get involved?
2: Yeah, I suppose there's an element of that too, yeah. Mm. It was everyone everyone sort of, you know, the social network mm. that, that my parents were in and all the kids were in, you know, things would happen all the time on, you know, with the, with the other families as well. But it was, yeah, that was, like you're saying, it was pretty much their business. No one else would sort of step in.
0: Do you remember how how you felt about yourself in that scenario? Say you're, you're 10, 11, 12, it's been going on for years. Hmm. You know that other adults know about it. No one's stepping in. Your mum's helpless. Hmm. What I mean, what were you feeling about yourself in that time? Do you remember?
2: I, I just assumed it was a normal way of life. I thought there was nothing wrong with any of it. It was only as I got older, you know, and when I, when I started having these problems myself, I realised there was something wrong with it. And this isn't a normal way for families to behave. This isn't a normal way for your parents to treat you or your partners. So, yeah, so as a kid, I really didn't think there was much wrong.
0: So as a kid, you thought the rest of us were, were living with these rampages at night time as well?
2: Yeah, I thought, I thought all families went through that. that. Yeah. Dads would lose their temper and lash out and, Mums would just go along with it and, you know, that was the way we were punished. So I just assumed that was how it happened.
0: Okay. But then as an adult, when you first started getting into relationships and certainly this this relationship, the biggest relationship in your life so far. Correct. You Did you think, did you worry going into the relationship that you may end up being a perpetrator as well? Did you think about it?
2: No, it never crossed my mind. Mm. And As I said, the first couple of years we were together, there was no issue at all, you know. There was, um, even after the, the there's been, in, my partner tells me of uh, incidents that happened I don't even remember, that's how, how bad it was, uh, that was because of the drinking, the substance abuse, there was, a, there was times I'd be violent that I don't even recall, mm. which I, I you know I feel greatly ashamed of, the fact that I can't even remember them. But the first time it happened, I still thought there was nothing wrong, you know, because um, my partner rang my mother. And told her what had happened, and the ambulance came to our house. And um, mum, my mum, basically took my partner aside and said, "I oh, don't ring the police," you know, which is pretty much the same sort of stuff that used to happen when I was a kid. So, so it's just again, it, at that that point in time, it just seemed pretty normal. This was this was the sort of stuff that went on as a kid. You know, with my parents, and it was starting to happen with me. And I just so, your mum, your mum,
0: presence. your mum, who has seen you move from victim to perpetrator, mm. uh, has encouraged your partner to to deal with it the same way she did.
2: Basically, yeah, yeah. to try yeah. and
0: keep it in house and just yeah. deal
2: with it. Yeah, just keep it private, keep it all between us. And of course, I promised I wouldn't do it again, mm. which you know was a promise I broke.
0: But I'm assuming you mean it at the time. I mean, you must feel, I'm assuming that remorseful begging and pleading and promising it'll never happen again, you mean that at the time, yeah?
2: Yeah, I did. I, I yeah. did mean it at the time, but it was a promise. I At that point, I didn't know I couldn't achieve. Mm.
0: Yeah. The, the violence escalates and you start really following the pattern that you grew up with in that you break up, you get back together, you break up, you get back together. That's correct, yeah. What's the worst the worst assault that you committed against your partner?
2: Um, I, it was actually the last time, which was in in the same thing, not long ago, only about maybe four years ago now, three mm-hmm. four years ago. I we were arguing over me going out all the time because I obviously obviously liking to drink All I wanted to do after work was go out and go to the pub, go out with my mates. I was never home, and um, we started screaming as we would always do, and She got frustrated. She lashed out. She, uh, I think, she threw the remote control at me. Mm -hmm. I was swearing at her, calling her all the names under the sun. And I charged across the room, pinned her down in a headlock, choked her. uh, Just started frantically punching her across the top of the head. No specific, you know, location or anything. I just started swinging my arm around while she was in my, you know, within my headlock. Um, She said something about she was going to call the police. Uh, I dragged her into the bedroom by her hair and choked her net and um, pinned her down and choked her and um, threw her off the bed onto the ground, kicked her in the guts a few times. And that was basically it. I said to her, I've had enough, I'm leaving. And that was that was the end of that. But she ended up with uh, bruises all across her face, um, bruising all up and down her arms, but, um, no broken bones or anything, but the sprained wrist.
0: Is this um, the time you were charged and convicted? <clears throat>
2: That was the second time, the time I was actually convicted. First time I was charged, I convinced her to withdraw the charges. Again, telling her, I've changed, I'm different, it's not going to be like this anymore, I promise. And I did change for a little while. I did I did behave myself and thought I was in control of myself and what was going on, but it would turn out, again, that I wasn't. I slowly got worse and worse. Um, my aggression increased again to that point where I actually moved out. As I said, I said, I would committed that and moved out that night. And the next day I had a phone call from the police.
0: So she'd plucked up the courage to actually go through with it.
2: Yep. Yep. She, uh, she spoke out to her friends and because she was noticeably abused at that time, at that time, you know, bruising everywhere. You could, you know, there was no hiding it. And
0: Um, that's terrifying for friends. And certainly in this climate that we're in now, friends must be saying to her, he'll kill you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was getting to that point. You know, there might not be a, a yeah. next time he says, sorry, you know, he might not come back from this. Mm-hmm. And at that point I still thought there was really nothing wrong. I just thought, that you know, she pushes my buttons, and, you know, she knows what I'm like when I'm angry, you well, know, the cliché.
0: You wouldn't be the only, there'll be people listening to this who will, will ask the question of her, mm. if you've got a violent partner, why are, you, why are you initiating violence? Why are you throwing a remote control at him? It does seem like you're both involved in a violent sort of cycle here.
2: Oh, well, I, she, she, um, you know, my partner's no angel. She would, she has a temper on her, or at least she did back then. And yeah, she would, she would lash out, throw things at me and, you know, she'd slap me across the face, things like that. But what I would give her in return was nowhere near reasonable action. A calm, reasonable person wouldn't re- retaliate in that, in the way I did. Or at all, really.
0: But it certainly feels as though you were both in need of some kind of psychological support. And
2: well, Yeah, well, we've both since been through therapy. We've both since been through anger management and that has seemed to have worked thus far.
0: So how did that all begin? So you, you're you charged, uh, you know, you can knock at the door, the police at the door. She's actually followed through with it. She's yep. called the cops. And, um yep. And you're charged at this point, you still don't feel like you've done anything particularly wrong. So where's where's the transition here? How do we get from there to here?
2: It wouldn't be for about another 18 months before I realised there was something wrong with my behaviour. I um, went through anger management class. And,
5: and was that court the, appointed?
2: It wasn't appointed, but suggested if I um, mm-hmm. wanted any chance of, you know, a lesser conviction or not to be convicted at all. So. Mm-hmm actively and voluntarily seek therapy and help. Mm-hmm. So I, I did. And at that point I was only doing it so I didn't get in trouble.
0: Yep.
2: You know, I wasn't doing it for the to better myself or to fix the problem. But um <clears throat> pardon me. Um there would be eighteen months later, I was starting to get in trouble with the police uh, in public when I'd be out drinking. Oh. you know, I'd be getting kicked out of bars, I'd be picking fights with people. Friends wouldn't be helping me out. They'd leave me to my own devices, you know, two in the morning. I'm trying to start something with people being a smart bum to them. uh,
0: By this stage, you've got a conviction for assault, so...
2: Yeah, correct. Yeah. And I had a good behaviour bond uh, for 12 months. Yeah. Uh, So we have a son together, my partner and I. She got an AVO against me. I wasn't allowed to see my son.
0: You're in the system at this stage. So when the police yeah. pull you up and look at your ID, you're you're flagged, you're in the system as, as a troublesome, frightening guy.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm there as a troublemaker, they they see it the minute they look at my file. Yeah. So but then it was my partner I had started seeing someone else.
0: Whoa it, what a it, trigger it, point for you.
2: Yeah, and at this point I realised, you know, I still had feelings for her and started talking to her again. And basically one day, you know, talking to her about getting back together. And at this point, she completely refused. No, never again, never again. And I went, why? Why can't it happen? And she just listed all the bad stuff I used to do, you know, all the, uh, aside from the violence, you know, just this long list of all the negatives, including the violence and other things. I wasn't a good father either. And I just took a look in the mirror and I sort of looked, looked at it and went, drinking, this was your drinking, you were drunk, you were hungover, upset that you couldn't drink this time. Um, as I said, drinking was a really big problem for me. And I realised that, you know, my friends don't want to hang around with me anymore. People are frightened of me. I decided I had to do something about it. I had to change. So that's when I sought out therapy, Um, ended up with a psychologist and um, did anger management class again, this time with my heart in it, actually paying attention to to how to get all this under control. And obviously it stems back to, My years have been abused.
0: Self-medicating with alcohol would not be uncommon, I wouldn't think, for victims of childhood abuse. That would be a common reaction, wouldn't
2: it? Well, the the therapist said that. And, of course, growing up in an environment where drinking was such a big part of life, you know, there was never a time of day where I wouldn't see my stepfather or his friends drinking. They influenced me to drink, you know, and drink heavy. It seemed normal to drink that much. So I naturally thought I have to be a man, you know, and this is how you do it, You, you know. You drink heavy, you do, you know, you're big and tough, you puff out your chest and you make yourself the toughest person in the room. At that point in life, I thought people are meant to be scared of you. That's how you assert your dominance. That's how you get respect. Realising this was a problem and this wasn't way of living through therapy and attending, I, I attended Alcoholics Anonymous, um, stopped drinking. The anger management got my uh, violence under control, got... The ability to control myself because anger is healthy it's how you vent your anger it's how you channel that anger and so healthy ways to channel that anger and um after about maybe nearly a year of interacting with my again now partner she could see i, I had genuinely changed friends could see it i'm a lot calmer person uh, i'm not as easily irritable i don't argue for the sake of arguing i don't go looking for the fight anymore and my partner, and while this was all going on in my life, she was getting therapy for the problems that she had. And obviously the violence was one of those things. She attended anger management as well, as a suggestion from her therapist, because it was evident that she also had issues with anger. And now we're both in a better place. Um, I haven't been violent for uh, over three years now. I don't drink anymore. I have the tools to control the anger now.
0: And now here you are speaking about being a former domestic abuser, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone speak about it before. Because I suppose once it is in your past, the last thing you want to do is let people know that it was ever there.
2: Well, it's not something that I can forget. You know, I've I've learned a great deal from it, and I regret, uh, of course, I regret ever being that person to begin with and committing those acts against. Because she is the person I love. She's the person I spend the rest of my life with. You don't. You shouldn't be treat. You shouldn't treat people like that, whether you're whether it's a man or a woman. Viol- violence is never the answer to anything, and the scars that it that it's left people, not just my partner, you know, her friends, the, the heartache, the stress that it causes her family. Oh uh, God, I can't imagine.
0: Family. I can't imagine when she told them that you were getting back together, what their reactions were.
2: Yeah, well, we've, given we've broken up and gotten back together so many times, mm. you
5: know,
2: it was nerve no wracking for me. I, you know to see her family again Mm. Um, but they seem to have accepted her judgment and you know I I get along reasonably well with most of them now. There was a point in time where I I wouldn't go anywhere near them or be in the same room as them but I never hide the fact that that was the person I used to be because it's something that people need to know that my theory is that most men that are like that do have demons and the people we are closest to are the people we hurt the most when we don't know how to deal with these demons. Yeah,
0: What would you say to an eight-year-old child who approached you now and told you that they were living through violence at home?
2: Um, Straight away contact the police, talk to your teachers, friends of the family, you know, be vocal. It may may be risky, you may be scared about doing so, but, but in the long run, it'll prevent anything happening to you or any other members of your family. It'll be better than It'll be better than the alternative, I suppose, is the best way to describe it.
0: Mm.
5: And,
2: of course, and of course I'd, I'd help them. I'd be there for them. No one should have to live, that, live through that.
0: It is a responsibility for all of us to be aware of and take, you know, be involved if we have to be. No one wants to be involved in something like this. What would you say to a man listening who is committing violence in his family?
2: Yeah, just same. same as me, take a look in the mirror. Uh, if people are telling you there's a problem, or if people are you know, avoiding you, you, you can you know that you know there's a problem. You know whether, whether you sort of shrug it off and think it's okay, you know it's not. You, you know seek help because in the long run you're going to lose everything that matters to you.
0: Yeah, and and there is help there. It sounds like you are the beneficiary of some kind of treatment that's made you feel mm. okay about yourself in mm. all of this.
2: I'm okay with the person I am now. I don't don't like looking back at the person I used to be. um, But But I I, guess there's uh, a
0: fear in people about sometimes about accessing support like that, support services, getting counselling. There's a fear that you're just going to end up feeling like shit about yourself and someone's going to sit there and point out all the reasons why you're a bad person.
2: Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, when I decided this is wrong and I have to do something, it just started out with a simple appointment with my GP. Okay. And I went and sat down with him and told him what was wrong and just that's where it started. He gave me referrals to therapists just going out for my specific problem with drinking AA and just went on from there and it only got better. You know, it is nerve-wracking. It is embarrassing at first to speak about it. But if, you, they don't judge. You know, the counsellors or therapists, helplines, anyone you speak to, they don't judge. And that's the best part about it. You know, once you get over that fear of being judged and you ex- you accept what you have done and the only way to fix it is to move forward. It makes it so much easier.
0: Yeah. And that sounds like the actions of a real man to me.
2: Yeah. Well, many people, as I said, i openly discussed this with anyone that asked. Many people have said it's a very courageous thing to do. Um, It's manning up in the real sense. Unlike the previous uh, theory I thought of manning up.
5: Yeah.
2: Swinging, swinging punches isn't manning up, you know, admitting you've got a problem and doing something about it is manning up
0: if you have some experience like andrews and you are ready willing and able to talk about it you can email laura at northernpictures.com.au We've included that email address in the show notes for this episode and on our social media. Northern Pictures is an Australian production company and they are embarking on a three-part documentary series about domestic violence in Australia. It's obviously a conversation that requires a lot of honest reflection and it's a safe space for somebody to be able to do that. So if that sounds like you, please get in touch. Laura at northernpictures.com.au. Thank you to the following patrons, Melissa Weir, Joe Kutchel, Emma Harrison, Louisa Casino, Natalie Fitzjohn. And thank you to you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.